Welcome back to the Aging Project Podcast. I'm your host, Shelley Craft, and together, my friends, we're on a mission to age well, bloody well, if I'm being honest. Let's be real, though. We all need guidance when it comes to aging well, and that's why we've gathered the best possible support team for us. No topic is off limits, and I promise to ask all the right questions, your questions. Before we dive in, don't forget to join our growing community of women from around the world. Sign up at theagingproject.com.au and become part of the Aging Project community. You'll gain access to our treasure trove of podcast episodes, our free five-day morning challenge, and did you know we now have an online store called You Must Try It? It includes products we've discovered from our podcast guests and community. Think low-tox skincare, low-tox makeup, supplements, and more. You'll only find products we've tried, tested, and we love at youmusttryit.com. Are you ready to begin today's episode? Alrighty, let's do it. The meditation, the visualization, the going out into green open spaces, the exercise, the breath work. There is so much science, so much medicine, so much efficacy, and so few side effects, you know? Only good and, ones. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> exactly, you know? And so that's why I'm a massive advocate of this. I don't in any way, shape, or form, I'm not saying that we shouldn't, we should be cutting medications out of the toolbox. I'm just saying that we should be adding more things to this beautiful toolbox of ours to give people options. And also some of these things can help to make the medications work better Mm -hmm. or more appropriately. That was the wonderful Dr. Olivia Lessler. She is here to share her knowledge on menopause, anxiety, and functional medicine. Her view is that the mind and body can't be separated. She takes the holistic view. This is such an interesting conversation, so I encourage you to settle in and enjoy my chat with the wonderful Dr. Olivia Lessler. Well, let's start back at the very beginning then, Dr. Livia Lesler. It's wonderful to have you here with us. Um, can you explain to us what your specialty is? Because it's an awfully long title that covers so many different uh, avenues of science and medicine in one great big long name with lots of letters after yours. <laughs> right. Um, so the expertise, uh, not specialty, the expertise is psychoneuroimmunology. And actually, it's psychoneuroendoimmunology, endo being hormones. So essentially, it's that intersection between psychology, the nervous system, neurology, and immunology, and how these things interact. It's, um, it came about because I wound up very luckily working for the Neuroimmunology Associates of New York, and that was the first time I was exposed to the idea that there are these um, pockets of medicine which is seeking to understand and have bridges between the different organ systems, between these things which we have separated in medicine for some reason. Mm -hmm. Because the, the human, the organism, is a whole moving, living, breathing beauty of evolution. The very fact that if you have a heart issue, you see your cardiologist, a lung issue, you see your, your respiratory physician, and they don't speak because they're too busy. And it's up to the GP to try and put everything together and they don't have the time, they don't have the training. It's, um, yeah, it was, it was a beautiful sort of 
mix, I thought, because I became more and more interested in how one's mindset, one's attitude, one's psychosocial um, inputs can actually manifest very strongly in disease or, or not. We would talk to you about this topic until the end of time. Um, and there's obviously so many different avenues to what you do. But we ran an, a survey recently on the Aging Project Instagram page, and 92% of people reported having anxiety as a symptom of perimenopause and menopause. That is, that is a huge percentage, and that's obviously what we'd love to focus on first with you today. Um, our audience, you know, is anywhere from 35 to 105, and we're all experienced. Experiencing <laughs> aging and wanting to do it the best we can. And I guess perimenopause is the start of when we really reflect on, oh my goodness, I'm getting old, uh, to put it bluntly, and the changes that are happening within our body that perhaps we weren't so aware of when we first um, went through maturity. But now, you know, our, our brains are more together, our lives are apparently more together, and we suddenly hit this new roadblock called perimenopause and everything starts to fall apart again. Um, and, <laughs> and anxiety playing a huge place in that, obviously, um, through the survey we did. So how and why is that part of, of menopause? So the really interesting thing, and I'm actually giving a talk about this very topic, which is perimenopause and menopause, um, you know, in, in a month or so. And as I was digging into the research, I was looking at it from a PNI perspective, from a psychological perspective. There are countries and cultures around the world that don't even have a word for menopause, where it is greeted with joy and acceptance, uh, uh, excitement because for, so for example in many Middle Eastern countries the women who um, may have more rules and regulations around what they wear and where they can go and who they can interact with that actually sheds when they go into menopause they get to go into places in like the temples for example or the mosques where they weren't able to go and they can speak more freely to the men uh, Japan and China when they talk about menopause it's actually a I don't know the words for it exactly, but it's more about um, coming into wisdom. And it's, it's a period of life that women embrace. There have been several papers on this about the fact that, um, especially in first world uh, English speaking countries, because we are so focused more on aesthetics and we place so much value on youth and beauty and not so much on our value as wisdom keepers, that there is more anxiety amongst women, including myself, coming into perimenopause and menopause. And I'm, I'm actively working to try and get on top of that. And I have to admit, I'm a bit lost. So We have been too. We've heard it from a lot of the wonderful guests that we've had on board, as you say, embracing this new stage in our lives and really feeling like this is the high point. You know, we've, we've worked so hard to obtain all that knowledge and life experience that, as you say, in the cultures that do embrace it, you know, we're hopefully we're sort of leading the charge here to be doing that as well. But I guess anxiety as a part of, oh, here it comes, I know it's happening, I am getting older, is very different to um, anxiety as a condition or, or an illness, isn't it? Yeah, that's so true. I mean, you know, I guess it goes boils down to what is our definition of anxiety? What do we understand that to mean? Mm -hmm. 
So it plays out in different ways. Um, you know, you'd speak to different types of uh, fields of knowledge in university and anxiety means different things. But generally speaking, we know that people who ruminate on the past and have many regrets, that is a different form of anxiety. Those people who worry about the future and are not, not in the present, that's also a different form of anxiety. And the people who worry about things they can't change, that's also a different form of anxiety. We have definitely had patients come through who have this just low-level sympathetic um, activation, you know, that fight-flight kind of activation. They're always on edge, but they're not quite, it's nebulous idea about what they may be concerned about. Mm -hmm. So it's really important to try and figure out when patients come through, what are your anxieties about? And that's when we're able to delineate, okay, maybe a health coach or a life coach or let's try and look at your diet and try and decrease that inflammation that may be afoot, which is leading to these anxiety-like thoughts or behaviors. I think another thing that we need to start looking at as, as a medical profession is we need to be careful about how we label patients. Mm -hmm. So when we say to someone, you are an anxious person, that's an identity. I have anxiety. That's an identity. You hold it. You breathe it. You live it, you are it, as opposed to, I have anxious thoughts right now, where you have control. You can do something about it. You are not the slave, you are the master. So there's anxiety, uh, and especially at different parts of our lives, and we'll go back to the perimenopause, menopause thing, but anxiety in different parts of our lives, different stages, I think we need to talk about it with a little bit more nuance than we do now, mm -hmm. because right now it's anxiety. And therefore, it seems as if it's, you know, kind of a one uh, one treatment type of mm -hmm. uh, pathway that you go down, where actually some anxiety is important for us. We need to be able to mount that kind of sympathetic response, that fight flight response when it's appropriate. Mm -hmm. If you can't, that's a problem because you won't be running from the saber-toothed tiger when it's right here, right? So mm -hmm. back to perimenopause, menopause. Look, you know, there is no doubt that hormones changing, of course, is going to, to impact physiological changes in the body, which can lead to anxiety-like thoughts, mm -hmm. behaviors. Hot flashes, for example, right? Just the idea that you're going to have a hot flash when you don't expect it and you're going to soak through your top and you might be somewhere fancy, you might be with someone, you know, on a date that you're trying to impress. And even the, 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 the forebodings of that, the worry about that, that, that's anxiety producing, you know. We're still not quite sure what causes hot flashes. We do know from some literature that it's the decreasing of what we call the thermoregulatory zone, temperature regulation zone, by noradrenaline, actually. In other words, if you were able to decrease someone's general stress, mm -hmm. general adrenaline, you'd actually widen that zone a little bit. So, you know, I, I don't want to seem a bit, oh, meditation, meditation. But yeah, you know, being mindful about those sorts of things is actually very important. So anxiety with perimenopause, it, it sort of feels to me a bit like the chicken or the egg. Am I anxious about perimenopause or am I anxious because I have perimenopause and we're still not really sure 
which one it is, which which I guess is, again is very different to um, deeply anxious people who have lived with this condition over their entire lifetime, whether it's something that they they hold all the time, whether it's something that crops up um, in certain situations or whether it is just a change in circumstance that has created this feeling. You've had experience in your life and if we we have a look at your your history a little bit before you got into medicine, you had anxiety, which is obviously different to menopausal anxiety. (laughs) Yes. Well, I'm I'm looking forward to the perimenopause anxiety, (laughs) which I'm sure is just around the corner. (laughs) Um, Yeah. So I don't remember being an anxious child. And in fact, I wasn't an anxious child. But I look back now and with my doctor hat, I can sort of see how I was starting to be set up for something like that. Susceptibility, shall we say. Um, And susceptibility is knowing your susceptibilities is knowledge and power. Because had I been a little bit more aware, I would have done more to develop my resilience and develop tools for when anxiety did pop up, Mm -hmm. right? Because I had asthma and hay fever very badly when I was growing up. So I was constantly inflamed. I was eating the wrong food, but we didn't know any better then. And, um, you know, I, even though I was generally happy, There was, of course, conflict in the family like there is for everybody else. When it came time to, well, actually, the first time I ever saw that my mental health had actually taken a bit of beating was when I started to work at a 24-hour restaurant, you know, as a student, and um, I was doing the night shift. And I, of course, threw out my circadian rhythm. Mm -hmm. And I noticed that when I got home from work, I would you know, have something to eat, watch TV, and then go to bed. And I couldn't get out of bed until I had to go to work. So I was, and I remember saying to someone, I feel like I'm afraid, but I'm not sure what I'm afraid of. Mm -hmm. And it it was not overtly anxiety, not overtly depression as we know it. But now I look back and I was the smiling depressive. I'd go to work and nobody knew that anything was wrong. Mm -hmm. But I would come home and I'd crawl into bed. And I just couldn't face the, I, it, was a, it was a very weird time. Um, and that's, you know, now I have a massive interest in sleep and sleep medicine and how important that can be for mental health. To be, to be frank with you, it can, it's so important for any medical issues, for longevity, for wellness, for neurodegeneration, for neuropsych, for all chronic diseases. Um, and there was... Issues happening as they do, they crop up, work, partnerships, family, school. And I realized that I just didn't have the resilience I needed because at one point during a very stressful time at uni, I had a panic attack. And I didn't actually even know what was happening when I entered the panic attack. Mm -hmm. All I know is that I started sweating and I needed to expend energy and I started running around the room. And luckily I was in a closed room with very good friends, but I started running around the room to expel this energy and I tore off my top. I was so hot and then I lay down under the table. Everything just felt 
like a buzzing sensation. And I had a tingling around my mouth and my fingertips because my body had moved all the blood into, you know, different areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and after that, I went to see a, you know, a psychologist and then I went down that, that pathway of seeing a doctor and getting on medication. That was what was offered to me. Um, and I just, it, it kind of blew over. I, I think I was on medication for about a week, two weeks. I didn't like the side effects. I stopped. Um, I saw the psychologist for a f- maybe a couple of months. She was nice enough, but I didn't, you know, it's, I didn't realize the value of the knowledge that she probably possessed mm-hmm. that I wanted to, to glean from her. It was, oh yeah, see a psychologist, but where's the drugs? That was what I was more interested in back then. Make this go away quickly. (laughs) Yes. Make this go away quickly. You know, obviously there must be something important about that medication because it's prescribed by a doctor and there's something wrong with my brain chemistry. You know, really the kind of message that's drummed into all of us. um, And there weren't very many, there weren't any other options offered to me Mm -hmm. then. So, um, look, I'm very lucky. I have very supportive friends, very supportive family, and I'm, I'm quite a type A personality, you know. That was uh, a long time ago, and I kind of never really had um, major issues like that, except once when I was writing a, a very uh, uh, a, a medical paper for a journal and the, the pressure was on. But anyway, <laughs> apart from that, um, you know, I've been really lucky with my mental health. But, but with that, you would have then recognised, okay, I'm starting to feel a little bit overwhelmed. I know I've probably got a deadline that I'm, I'm running short of making, but I have been in this situation before and, I'm, and I don't want to run around in circles and get all hot and, and have to go through that process again. So I guess the knowledge of what the start of that feels like was valuable in you being able to deal with it the second or third or fourth time around. Yes, Yes, 100%. And everything got so much better when I acknowledged and paid due respect for the many options that are available to us to deal with our anxiety or our frustration, our anger, that, you know, we all talk about it. We all know about it, but not, we don't, maybe it was just me, but it wasn't until maybe three, four years ago that I really thought, wow, look at the science behind all this, the meditation, the visualization, the going out into uh, green open spaces, the exercise, the breath work. There is so much science, so much medicine, so much efficacy, and so few side effects, you know? (laughs) Only good ones. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Exactly. You know? And so that's why I'm a massive advocate of this. I don't in any way, shape, or form, I'm not saying that we shouldn't, we should be cutting medications out of the toolbox. I'm just saying that we should be adding more things to this beautiful toolbox of ours to give people options. And also, some of these things can help to make the medications work better mm-hmm. or more appropriately, you know? So, this is about education, choice, and information. That's it. And I think, you know, we've often referred to these ideas as alternative medicines or alternative ideas but I think that language needs to change a little bit too doesn't it to be supportive or functional is obviously one that we use a lot now but it doesn't have to be one or the other 
But as you say, in your in your magic toolbox, when you are dealing with stress, anxiety, panic attacks, overwhelm, um, it's nice to be able to reach into that bag and not just for the medication, but for other things that we can take control of ourselves. And and I've always found that even with you know um, headache medication and things, I'm like. Oh, I know it's there. I know it will help straight away, but what is the underlying problem? Am I dehydrated? Am I tired? Is the light too bright? You know, what is it that's given me this condition? And if, you know, a headache pill is going to be the only thing that fixes it right now, but at least I've, I've deconstructed it and thought about what it might possibly be beyond just that. Exactly. Exactly. Because, you know, we have symptoms because our body is trying to talk to us. What is the body trying to say? If we are constantly shutting the body up, mm-hmm. at some point you may miss listening, you may miss the messages, you may miss being able to, communi- to communicate with your body and really understand its inner, in, understand its inner workings. Mm-hmm. You know, and um, I, I've seen patients in, in emergency, for example, where because we no longer live in villages, and we no longer have the wisdom of the tribe. You get these first-time parents, and they don't know what um, normal poo in a baby looks like, for example, or what a normal cry is, mm-hmm. or if there's a, any indication of a temperature, they're straightened. You know, and and that's it, it's a reflection of what's happening to us as a society. Mm-hmm. But also, it's about really understanding what the spectrum of normal looks like too. You know, these messages that we're given, we need to start learning to decipher them more appropriately. A quick pause in today's episode to share some of my must-try products at youmusttryit.com. Through the Aging Project, I've learned managing stress is something to be intentional about, which is why over at youmusttryit.com, we've created a stress and sleep page with all of our favourite products. After today's episode, go check out the Shakti mat. This is an acupressure mat with over 6,000 spikes. Yes, I swear by it, as do so many of our customers. Even previous guest, Dr. Peter Wright from the Vera Wellness Clinic said, I love this mat, Shelley. Thank you. It is my pleasure, Dr. Peter. (laughs) To grab yours, just go to youmusttryit.com and type Shakti. That's S-H-A-K-T-I. You'll also find essential oils, supplements and organic teas, all designed to reduce stress and aid sleep. Trust me, all are a must try. Just go to youmusttryit.com for a 10% discount off your first order and to join our community. The good news is we also ship internationally. Yes, we do. Alrighty, back to the show. Where do you work? Where would we come across you um, on our medical journey? So I actually started to get into psychoneuroimmunology because I just realized you, you cannot separate the body from the mind, right? Um, but my actual work is in complex chronic conditions. I'm a generalist, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so in other words, I'm at lots of different clinics, helping in different arenas, and then just bringing my own special expertise into the mix to try and improve things for patients where the normal regular paradigm isn't quite enough for them. So um, in Sydney, I work at Singulum Health, which is a brain optimization center. 
our hero intervention there is um, connector mapping. So the electrical, visualizing the electrical highways of the brain, looking at all the different networks, seeing how the networks are speaking to itself and between networks, and then using repetitive transcranial magnetic stimulation or TMS. Thank you. <laughs> uh, yeah, a TMS um, as a as a as a targeted individualized way to bring on brain plasticity, helping the brain open that door so that it can reorganize itself. And then we adjunct that with other um, modalities that also help with neuroplasticity. So diets, for example, like the ketogenic diet or um, the autoimmune uh, protocol, uh, some supplements like magnesium, um, photobiomodulation, which is light therapy, uh, hyperbaric oxygen. I mean, a whole bunch of things that we do there. And in Queensland, I work with a, a allerg an allergist, an immunologist allergist with his complex patients. Um, in LA, I work with a concierge medical practice. So um, we work with... A, small group of patients where we are their private doctor from start to finish. And um, in London, I work with a longevity practice there. My goodness me. So you really do. I think for you, you need to be able to see and know everything. And I guess they all end up playing together anyway, just with that combined information and knowledge. Is Australia, are we, are we up there with functional medicine or are we way behind the rest of the world? I think that a speed bump, look, I think we can all agree that universal healthcare is fundamental, pivotal, and amazing. In this day and age, with the rise of very complex conditions, which span many different organ systems, and clearly this strategy that we have of band-aiding the symptoms is not quite cutting the mustard with these patients. Mm -hmm. Universal healthcare is actually possibly part of that road bump for functional medicine, holistic medicine, looking at the patient and appreciate, appreciating the patient as a whole. Mm -hmm. Our research in Australia is second to none. There is a bit of a chasm between research and translatable clinical practice. And I'm, mm, I think that might be a Medicare thing, mm -hmm. um, but we're not particularly adventurous with our clinical practice because we have to practice within a scope. And that scope has been dictated to us by the colleges of medicine, by the government, by Medicare, by APRA, and they keep patients safe. Absolutely. But they also blunt innovation. Mm -hmm. So some of the interventions which are mainstream or mainstay in Germany, Japan, France, Switzerland, the US is not available here to patients under Medicare, mm -hmm. which is fine because that is an economic decision. But patients have to realize and doctors actually have to realize that if something is not part of our guidelines, it's not because there isn't efficacy. It's not because there isn't evidence. It actually does boil down to economics. And that is an absolutely uh, understandable position that the government is in. 
But don't kid yourself that there's nothing beneficial about hyperbaric oxygen just because the government won't pay for it. Mm -hmm. The government doesn't pay pay for dental treatments for adults, generally speaking. That doesn't mean that you shouldn't be seeing your dentist twice a year. So we are behind the world in functional medicine generally. There's small pockets Mm -hmm. of very amazing practitioners here in Australia, definitely, but generally we're behind so when it comes to, I guess, mental wellness, um, that's not uh, an ER situation, that's not, you know, a shark bite, uh, it's not a snake, it's something that we just... <laughs> You're so Aussie. <laughs> shark bite, snakes, spiders, crikey. Is there an international <laughs> audience? I'm sorry if that has effect on tourism, but, you know, they're, they're the only reasons that I would go to the hospital ER. Um, I wouldn't go there there for a panic attack and, and I wouldn't go there for um, something that just didn't feel right. I would go there if I was bleeding out. That is why I would use an emergency so centre. <laughs> um, you know, <laughs> we, whenever we saw a farmer come through or someone who lived in, uh, you know, rurally, a lot of the time they'd have an arm hanging off, but it happened about two days ago and they only came in because their wife forced them. <laughs> Well, that is, that is very right. Aussie. That is very Aussie. I'm just going to glue it back on. It'll yeah. be fine. <laughs> It'll be right. <laughs> but for those sort of, I guess, deeper seated, and this is where the psycho uh, neuroimmunology must come into it. If our brain was healthy, would we suffer from those things? Um, and I know that's a, a massive generalisation, and I guess what I'm trying to say, if if, if we were eating, exercising, our circadian rhythm was in track, we had our melatonin levels sorted, if we were actually living the perfect life, would we still have um, issues like anxiety and and panic attacks and that fight or flight system would be regulated but our stress levels would be lower? Would we still get sick? So I don't think so. Hmm. I don't think so. I think that, of course, look, before the advent of modern medicine, the reason why um, lifespans were, and, and this is debatable, right? But my understanding is that lifespans were shorter for sure, but that's because people died of acute issues, mm-hmm. falling out of trees and getting infections and not having antibiotics. Shark and attacks, life-saving surgeries. snake bites. Shark attacks, snake bites, <laughs> spider bites, crikey. <laughs> Right. <laughs> so, you know, and um, however, if you were able to survive, dodge those things that would kill you, you lived long and you lived well. Mm-hmm. So we may be living longer generally now, but we're not living better. I think the consensus is mm-hmm. we're sicker, we're more stressed, we're having this these complex diagnoses coming through, trickling down from Europe and the US, we don't even acknowledge some of these diseases that are coming in from that. Sorry, when I say diseases, I don't mean like some sort of uh, like fungal plague coming through. I mean, these recognized conditions overseas, which we still don't have recognition of those conditions here. So for example, tilt, toxicant induced loss of tolerance. This is a condition whereby someone who is acutely exposed to pesticides, herbicides, some sort of chemical, then obviously has that reaction that we would expect, 
but they never bounce. They they don't bounce back like we think that they should, mm-hmm. and their immune system just gets a bit funny. Mm-hmm. Now we can do something about it, but tilt isn't even acknowledged here in Australia yet as mm-hmm. being a problem. Whereas there is a whole university department dedicated to tilt in the US mm-hmm. at San Antonio University. Anyway, I digress. No, um, no. So that's not. I mean, obviously, we we're learning. Um, organic fruit and veg is the better way to go because it hasn't been modified. It hasn't been sprayed. Uh, none of those things happen. You're not really talking about. And and I guess it does build up, doesn't it? If you're eating. Um, the skin of fruit every day and vegetables that has been sprayed, um, you could have a buildup of toxins within your body and, and we've discussed that with other guests over time. But if it's mm. someone working in that industry um, yes. that is highly exposed, yeah. obviously their levels of toxicity are going to be much, much more than the average person eating apples at home. All right. Yes, absolutely. So this is a, 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 a very big exposure in a very short period of time, mm-hmm. which actually uh, last year, the year before, a patient came through and the immunologist and I actually were able to work on him and diagnose this condition. Amazing. Um, so you were saying about the fact that, you know, if we were living the perfect life, would we be getting sick? And I think generally speaking, when we're talking about the sickness that we're talking about, you know, mm-hmm. that chronic illnesses, the cardiovascular stuff mm-hmm. and the, the diabetes, then no, really? I mean, or, or rather, at least let's be fair, it would be very, very much depleted, mm-hmm. right? I mean, there would be few, may, much fewer people who'd be unwell with these sorts of things. Mm-hmm. I think I wanted to maybe go back, if that's okay with you, to talk about the evolutionary reason why we even have a response, like an anxiety response or a depression response, right? There is an evolutionary purpose to it and it's beautiful. We've hijacked it with the nonsense that we put in our bodies, in our air and, you know, in our food and our water and expose ourselves to on TV and social media. There, the reason why we have anxiety responses, or let's just put it the way, it, you know, from a physiological point of view, a sympathetic response is so that we're able to mount an appropriate reaction to a threat, real or perceived, mm-hmm. doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. And that's an important point for us to discuss later because perception of threat is also going to ignite the same biochemical responses, cortisol, adrenaline, cortisol, adrenaline. So it can be a real threat, car crash. It can be a little threat. Well, it's not really a threat, but it can be a little annoyance, like losing your car keys and being late for work. You are still going to be producing the same chemicals, Mm -hmm. albeit at different levels, but we don't have a, a modern nuanced, uh, reaction to stressors because this is one of the oldest evolved parts of our of our chemistry mm-hmm. of our um, physiology so it's the same chemicals so your um, you know your more sort of let's just say ancient brain for want of a better word is going to go oh my god what's happening should we hunker down should we run should we fight I mean those are the same things that it's going to go through that part of the brain every single time that you spit out adrenaline or cortisol mm-hmm. and the amount that you spit out is obviously going to inform the decisions it makes, but also the duration that you're carrying this cortisol load, this adrenaline load, because your brain and body's number one mission in life is to help you survive. The, the, it would prefer if it didn't have to keep running and fighting. 
So sometimes when it's just so weary of the constant fighting and running, it would rather get you in the cave. And it's not quite sure what the threat is because from an evolutionary perspective, the threats are famine, winter, plague, and predator. Mm -hmm. And the best place for you is in the cave where you're not going to be able to, if this is some sort of plague, you're not going to be able to give it to the rest of the village. If it's in the village, they're not going to give it to you. You are going to be safe from the predator and you can go into hibernation mode to see out this famine or this winter, whatever this problem is. That's also depressive. That's also depression. Mm -hmm. Those are depressive-like symptoms, right? Or sickness-like behavior, Mm -hmm. we also call it. So there are absolute evolutionary reasons for why we even get these sort of anxious feelings or depression feelings. But what you said before, Shelley, was absolutely right. And that is appropriately, you know, Mm -hmm. we lived in, in an evolutionary way that was sympathetic to our environment, was sympathetic to our needs and our wants in a, a way that was helpful for our health then yeah, we wouldn't get these extended periods of anxiety, these extended periods of depression. But unfortunately, we do now. But that's a wonderful explanation because if you are feeling any of those things, again, masking it or making it go away for the period of a, of a tablet isn't really helping, is it? Because once it wears off, you're, you're back to where you were. So unless you know what is triggering it or what is causing it or why you're reacting the way you're reacting. And I'm, I'm assuming a lot of this may come down to epigenetics as well. Do some people deal with stress better um, sure, yeah, absolutely. than others in the fact that, you know, we're all living in the same world. We're all as crazy as each other. We're all, you know, running up. We all lose our keys. <laughs> um, some of us are going to react to that very, very differently. And is that because there's just a, a different way that each person reacts? Recently, everyone's been talking about APOE4, which is a, a gene SNP single nucleotide polymorphism, which can predispose you or make you more susceptible to inflammation mm-hmm. and Alzheimer's. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had patients ask me, why is this even in our gene pool? Why do we even have something that's going to predispose us or make us susceptible to Alzheimer's? And the, the answer is at some point, all these SNPs, all these genes were advantageous, um, you know, at some point. So being able to mount an inflammatory response in a robust way, like what ApoE44 can confer to you, Mm -hmm. is an advantage if you're trying to identify a threat in the brain and get rid of it. Mm -hmm. Because inflammation in the short term is protective and regenerative. Mm -hmm. It's only when inflammation is extended out for a longer period of time that it starts to become destructive. Mm -hmm. Um, And in fact, ApoE4 used to, I have seen it in the literature as being the God gene because of your ability to have been able to deal with viruses or bacteria or whatever it is that have gone into the brain in a, you know, many, 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 many moons ago, of course. So, you know, I, I think that too many of us doctors and patients, um, first of all, we blame our genes for a lot of things. And in the literature with chronic diseases, something like less than 30% of your predicament, of your illness is actually because of your genes, right? You and I both know that a a lot of these chronic complex conditions are also known as lifestyle diseases for a reason. Mm -hmm. 
So can we change genes? No. Can we affect genes in far, as far as epigenetics go? Sure. Should we? Absolutely. For our children and our grandchildren? Absolutely. Right. The Dutch famine study showed that in a period of time where they went through a famine, not them, not their kids, but their grandkids are more likely to be obese because all these genes to make sure they never went through famine again like that, mm. or they were protected from a famine like that again, were all turned on. So they're more likely to be obese. So yes, we should be protecting our genome for the future generations. Staying away from chemical exposures, which harm our DNA, absolutely. But, you know, the things that are much more in our control are those lifestyle factors that you talk about. Mm -hmm. The sleep and the food and the water and the air and the community. So I think all of us can agree on that. I just think that we need to give it a little bit more respect than I feel the medical fraternity have. Mm -hmm. You know, they kind of lump it in together. Yeah, yeah, have, an, have a balanced diet and don't forget to exercise. But, you know, half the time the doctor sitting in front of you doesn't look the picture of health themselves um, and has got chronic conditions as well. And, and so we need to start truly understanding what these things mean translatably for the patient and for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And for the patient being us, we need to listen to ourselves more and to take more responsibility too, I guess. We can't just hand you our problems and expect you to, to fix them. We have to actually be the driver of our own wellness, um, of our own longevity. So where would you suggest uh, we start, Olivia? What is the best place? Are we cleaning up our diet? Are we cleaning up our minds? Are we cleaning up um, our, our physical activity? What are your keys um, for getting a healthy mind, healthy body and lowering? We're not saying we're going to get rid of anxiety or depression, but we're going to manage it and we're going to be able to mm. lower the effect it has on us. Yes. Yeah, 100%. Look, if we're talking about fundamentals or foundations of health, you and I both know it's nutrition, sleep, movement, mindset, breathing, adequate, safe sun exposure and community. Okay. So it's actually that which you can sustain, which is going to make the biggest impact over time on your health. Mm -hmm. Fad anything, including fad medications, is possibly useful to you in the short term to open up that healing space to, you know, when you go through a juice cleanse, for example, and you lose a bit of weight and feel a bit, you know, feel a bit better, more energized. That opens up that healing space, that decreases the symptoms so that you can then work on the things you know that you need to work on. Mm -hmm. but, but it's the things that you do every day that actually make a difference. And they're usually very small changes. We know how important sleep is. We know how important the circadian rhythm is. Make a commitment. From now on, I'm going to make sure that I'm in bed by 9, 10 p.m. and that I'm going to get up without my alarm clock if you can, if you can try at seven or six or whatever it is that, that works for you, you know, and if you can't quite manage it, that's okay. Whatever you can do is going to be enough for you at that stage. Mm -hmm. Then you push it back 15 minutes here, buy another half an hour there, a little bit more, 15 minutes there. You know, you, you do all your prepping the day before instead of running around that morning. There, there are so many little things that we should be doing that we can do. That is, feasible, mm -hmm. that is uh, manageable and attainable. 
So that's the sleep part, making sure that at night you don't have bright white lights on because that is going to affect your sleep. Mm -hmm. Change the light bulbs. Can we stand that for a second? How, and yeah. I, and I know yeah. it's not a blanket solution for everyone, but shift workers like, like you were when you were working the night shift, is mm. there a routine? Is there, is it blackout curtains? Is it still trying to get eight hours or nine hours generally? Is there a, um, something that you can do to create a night atmosphere during the day? Well, how does a shift worker manage their sleep patterns? So I think the first thing is acceptance accepting that it's not the ideal or optimal situation to be in, mm -hmm. but you are going to do your best and your best is enough. Mm -hmm. Just that can actually take a lot of worry away from people because we are constantly told about how bad these things are. But if you can't change it, that's, that's, a that's, that's terrible for you. Mm -hmm. So all the suggestions that you made about the blackout curtains, making sure that you have a, a very cool room to sleep in, which, which optimizes sleep, actually making sure that, you know, you're not putting too many duvets on top of you because if you sweat, then your body temperature raises. And, you know, the whole point of melatonin, for example, is actually to drop your temperature by about 0 0.3, 0 0.5 degrees, because that's necessary to open up that brain cleaning function of the glymphatic system. So everything that you would be doing at night that we should be doing, just do it when you are meant to be sleeping because you're working the shift work. Mm -hmm. And really prioritize making sure that you, when you do get up, that you are as much as possible, if there is still light, exposing yourself to natural light. Otherwise, if that's not possible, then you work on the things that you can. Mm -hmm. The clean food, the organic food. I, I am a proponent of organic food. I know that it can be a little bit rude for a, a, a conventional doctor, but you know there is something to be said about the the nutrient density of whole foods. So get rid of the processed stuff. Making sure that you are doing your meditations and all the rest of it, because and that's why I'm so interested in PNI. And that is this: I have seen patients be very very sick. I'm talking terminal cancer and part, not all, of course. Right? But part of their healing journey, which they attribute to why they no longer have terminal cancer, has got to do with shoring up the mind and the attitude. And, you know, there, people talk about false hope. And I think I need to address this because there might be someone listening to this who gets upset about this. False, for me, hope is just the absence of despair. So if you have a very terrible diagnosis, shoring up your mindset and your heart and spiritual aspects to your life is going to be helpful for you one way or the other. Mm -hmm. um, but yeah, so, you know, I, I think that even though shift workers are going to be at a bit of a disadvantage, obviously, because of the circadian rhythm, making sure that they optimize everything else is going to be a really good buffer. And positive attitude, as you say, going into it, okay, this is the situation I'm in. Don't look at it as a bad thing because you've got a job and you're working, which is awesome. Right. Um, you've just got That's to right. to manage the sleep side of it. You mentioned food. There's obviously things we need to cut out, processed foods. Uh, something we've spoken a lot about here is oils, uh, seed oils, mm. anything that's in a can, 
basically. Um, Anything that's in a clear bottle mm -hmm. because these oils oxidize very quickly. So anything in a clear bottle because it's going to be exposed to light is going to oxidize it a little bit more quickly. It's going to break bonds and stuff. Anything that's, look, you've got it down pat. I'm sure you've had amazing guests, but seed oils are definitely out. And in fact, even good oils like olive oil or, um, you know, some people count coconut oil as being uh, beneficial. I do. Uh, Not everybody does. I know that. Um, Animal fats like ghee or lard. I know some people don't count those, but I do. Um, Just also making sure that those aren't oxidized. You know, you have to be careful with your oils. Have you heard the news? Our sister platform, You Must Try It, now offers one-on-one health coaching via Zoom with our team of qualified experts. Our store exists to offer you more than our tried and tested products. We want you to age well, and at the foundation of that is your health. Let me share Lou's feedback, one of our recent customers. She wrote, I still can't believe how much we got through in an hour. I was offered the most detailed personal advice I've ever had. I've been talking to all my friends about their health coaching sessions and my experience. The friends that have already had their session couldn't be happier. Thank you, Lou. So if you're struggling with a health issue, perhaps a gut, a thyroid, weight, energy or sleep issue, or maybe like Lou, you just want to optimise your health, our You Must Try It team of qualified health coaches would love to help you. They can help with everything from blood, hormone and food sensitivity testing to practical strategies so you know what to do and buy that is actually going to work. Just go to youmusttryit.com and book your appointment and let's take action to age well, my friends. Supplements, that if we're not getting them out of our food, which these days it's very hard to know how much nutrition is actually in the food we're eating, so topping mm. ourselves up with, with good supplements can't be a bad thing. Can, can you overdo it, I guess, is one question. And what would you be taking or are there supplements that you take on the regular that you believe give you great healthy brain function? Yeah, um, you can overdo it, absolutely, but that's why... You know, if our focus is on whole foods, when we do take supplements, you don't take therapeutic amounts unless, of course, you're using it therapeutically. Mm-hmm. You don't take therapeutic amounts. You take just that top up, exactly what you're saying, just that little baseline, just to make sure that you're not going to be at a deficit. Mm-hmm. Because like you said, if you're looking at an apple, organic or otherwise, you have no idea what's in it. Organic simply means that isn't that, or hopefully, isn't that, additive of herbicides or pesticides Mm -hmm. but the quality of the fruit and the veg is still going to be determined by the soil and we know we have issues with that Mm -hmm. worldwide Mm -hmm. um so focus on whole foods said about that can you overdo it on supplements yes you can when you're doing supplementation therapeutically you have to treat it like a medication you have to be able to monitor yourself you have to be doing it with someone who knows what they're doing because and this is what grinds my gears about therapeutically using supplementation. Uh, Many practitioners, doctors, because they don't have an intrinsic respect for vitamins and minerals, it's a bit like, oh, yeah, yeah, you take your zinc, whatever, 10, 25 milligrams, whatever. But there is, you know, there there is a nuance to all of this. One, first of all, you can't actually absorb more than 10 milligrams of zinc in any one sitting because your receptors tap out. Two is that there are different preparations of zinc. Mm-hmm. You know, it's zinc orotate, zinc picolinate, blah, blah, blah. What do those things mean? How does it affect its bioavailability? Three, what is your end goal? When you micromanage the micronutrients, you're going to run into problems. 
Doctors who know also do, right? Because when you're playing around with zinc, you're not just playing around with zinc. You're playing around with its ratio with copper. When you're playing around with magnesium, you're playing around with its ratio with calcium. When you're playing around with magnesium, you're also determining how well that you use your vitamin D. So it's really complex. So that's therapeutic, and we're not talking therapeutic. Mm -hmm. We're talking day-to-day stuff. Okay, so my big ones that I take on a regular basis, and I actually use the pulse method. So the pulse method means I don't take something every day, mm-hmm. um, unless unless there's something going on. But I I will get it in um, if I'm traveling, if I know that my diet hasn't been amazing, if I've had a glass of wine, if I'm a bit more stressed than I normally am, and so on and so forth. And so it's a little bit about trying to read your body. Right. Uh, vitamin C is a big one for me. Mm-hmm. Um because just looking at, even if there was an amazing amount of vitamin C in our whole fruits and veg, the very fact that vitamin C is an antioxidant, and when you remove the plant, uh, sorry, when you remove the vegetable or the fruit from its roots or from the tree, it starts to oxidize and choose through the antioxidant capacity. Mm-hmm. That's the whole point of it mm-hmm. being there. So by the time the, the apple is picked, transported, gets to Woolies and sits under fluorescent light, which also damages the cells, by the way, it's not very much in it, even if it's organic. So I take vitamin C, um, B vitamins, uh, because especially these things are all water-soluble, so they're not stored in your fats. Um, I take magnesium because there definitely is a big deficit of magnesium. Um, I have these supplements which actually come in the form of foods so i'll take a teaspoon of fish roe every day for my omega-3 fatty acids i will take 80 grams of uh, organic beef liver three times a week or so but that's because i'm looking for my vitamin a my e and my k2 Mm -hmm. and i take one to two brazil nuts a day for my selenium Mm -hmm. i will also if i'm out i will always order oysters even if I'm not having a seafood meal, I will have one, maybe two oysters every time I'm out for my zinc, my B12, and my copper. What a great tip. Yeah, so that's, that's my little routine. Well, that's great. And that, obviously, all of those things play to healthy mind, healthy body. You've, you've mentioned um, meditation a couple of times today. Do you have a, a daily practice? Do you practice twice a day? Is there a special type of meditation that you enjoy most? Yeah, um, so I do guided meditation, um, mostly because it. Um, I use the Calm app, by the way, and hmm. the voice of Tamara Levitt got me through some pretty tough times early 2019. And so now all she has to say is, hi, this is Tamara Levitt. <laughs> Boom. I'm, my para- I'm, I'm gone. Yeah, gone. <laughs> Parasympathetic here, sympathetic there. I look like I've just, you know, like come out of a hot bath. Like I... I so it's very Pavlovian for me now, but I, so I've, I've, yeah, so I've stuck to that. I've stuck to the Calm app. I've stuck to um, guided meditation with that. I only do mm-hmm. uh, the daily meditation in the morning, which is like 12 minutes. I'm not even mm-hmm. out of bed and I, I just press play and it's done. I actually, when I was going through that difficult time in 2019, I was actually doing hours of guided meditation a day because I didn't know what else to do. I couldn't really speak to someone about the issues that I was going through. So she got, well, the app kind of got me through. I was doing up to six hours a day, just, just running it, just playing it. And then I'd fall asleep. 
but I wake up and I just play it again. And it just, something definitely shifted in me and life has been very different since then. I actually recently spoke to my boss in LA um, because he meditates too. And um, he, he asked me, he goes, so you meditate, don't you? I said, oh, yes, I do the, you know, the 12, 15 minutes a day. And he goes, oh, you don't do more than that? No, I don't really have time. And he said, and I really need to, you know, do something about this. Take notes. Uh-huh. Yes, here's your prescription yeah. coming your way. <laughs> he said, if you feel you don't have time for more meditation, it means that you have to do more meditation. Mm-hmm. Oops. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan. And, you know, there are so many different types of meditation. I was very afraid of meditation back in the day because I just automatically assumed sitting, you know, with lotus, lotus legs, mm-hmm. lotus position, uh, and sort of not doing anything for an hour. And I just, it kind of, it was just very daunting. Um, and then being exposed to the world of meditation where there are actually so many different types. If one doesn't sing to you, try and try mm-hmm. and try again. It's a little bit like psychologists, right? You meet someone and you don't quite gel and then you go, oh, psychology isn't for me. There's so many different types of psychologists practiced by, uh, sorry, there's so many different types of psychology practiced mm-hmm. by so many different t- psychologists. You know, the right combo is going to be sort of possibly out there for you. Do you think, I know that you're seeing people with anxiety, they're getting younger and younger. We, we hear of, of children with anxiety now. Um, obviously, A, we would, we would love to stay off medication for kids as long as we possibly could, I'm sure, but getting them to sit still and meditate for even five <laughs> minutes or, or do deep breathing practices um, is very difficult. Is this, obviously, psychologists um, are there for those reasons and you're suggesting shopping around, finding someone that works for you or, or your child um, is really important. Yeah, absolutely, you know, and also maybe speaking to someone who understands about the different types of interventions, mindfulness interventions, psychological interventions, because, you know, you've got CBT, you've got EMDR, you've got visualization practices. There are lots, it doesn't have to be talk therapy. I think that we mm-hmm. have been exposed to this idea that psychological, psychological interventions with a psychologist or counselor is talk therapy. And that's, that it's, couldn't be further from the, from the truth. I personally don't resonate well with talk therapy. I know that some people it does, but I don't resonate with talk therapy. Um, I'm very much, uh, you know, we understand that this thing in the past is triggered you for whatever reason. And now this is, you know, why you have these reactions too. That's a once that is a one session or one realization thing full stop you know that now what what do we do how do we get over it how do we be better how do we do better think better feel better right and these therefore I, i'm much more interested for for me and and my patients who it resonates with i'm more interested in the present and the future as opposed to the past so I guess um, I, I'm a big fan of Gabba Mate, for example, and Bessel van der Kolk. Um, you know, their psychoneuroimmunology practices are second to none. And, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I, I hope to be able to even come close just a little bit 
to the kind of work that they're doing, where they're able to affect so many people's lives by helping patients reframe. So all of the things that we've spoken about today um, are obviously great things to put into play for that perimenopause anxiety um, that we're feeling, not not the chronic or complex conditions, but those everyday um, feeling completely out of control, the, the stress that comes with it. So obviously healthy diet, good sleep, uh, Getting rest and exercise are going to are going to help. There is no doubt. There is no that doubt they are going to help with right. those anxious feelings. That's right. There is no doubt. The, the literature is very clear that they are immensely benef- uh, beneficial for patients, and that there are no or little side effects to them, and therefore they really should form the foundation of our practice when it comes to approaching anxi- uh, anxiety and depressive. Um, uh, sentiments in patients, children or perimenopause, right? The fact that there is this ridiculous rise in anxiety in children means that we need to double down on these efforts where we are talking about these fundamentals of health. And giving them the skills that when they are going through menopause themselves, um, <laughs> that they can look back on those times ago. I now have those things in my tool bag right. to help me through the tough times. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, and there's always there are always options. There is always hope, always, you know, and that that can involve medications, but a lot of the time it's carving out a, a lifestyle that works for you and is going to, to really benefit you from a more spiritual and emotionally happy place. And I think, as you say, looking to those other cultures that do embrace this stage in our lives a little bit more than we do here in Western civilization, and maybe, you know, take on board a lot of those ideas and, and philosophies and just just be who we are and be prepared and, and look forward to the next 50-odd years yeah. because we're lucky to get there, aren't we? 50. Do you mean 60, Shelley? Come on. 60. I do, actually. I do. My daughter said to me the other day, she said, I think I'm going to live to 120. And I said, well, that's a very good aim. I think as a 10-year-old, that's a pretty good goal to have. Wow. Um, I said, I've been gunning for 110 my whole life, but that does still mean you're going to have to live without me for a little while. But by 120, I think you'll you'll have it under control. Wow. But uh, why, shouldn't, why shouldn't the future generations think they're going to live that long? It's completely possible in my eyes. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the very fact that she's talking about it is is quite exceptional because people are talking about the fact that we can absolutely probably live to about 120. I mean, David Sinclair is talking about what, 150. So that's incredible. But you've got to eat your veggies. You've got to take your supplements and you've got to meditate don't you, to get exactly. there. Exactly. <laughs> I know that you have a huge interest in biohacking mm. um, and that you do attend conferences all around the world. So if we would like to get in contact with you and, and where can our audience uh, follow you a little bit closer, Dr. Olivia, to find out more about what we've spoken about today, obviously, um, and just be a part of your community as well as ours. Oh, well, thank you so much. Um, so I'm on social media and most active, I suppose, on Instagram. Or trying to be, and that's at Dr. Olivia Lesler, L E S S L A R. And in fact, that handle is across all social media platforms and LinkedIn as well. Um, my website is the best place to be able to contact me and <clears throat> see where I'm going to be, which conferences I'm attending, so that patients or people are actually able to try and network with me. Um, and um, it also shows you my current um, 
uh, career appointments, the different positions I hold, like at university, for example, or wherever. And that's www.dralidialesler.com. Perfect. Thank you so much. And thank you so much for your time today. This has been a wonderful conversation. You are a brilliant educator. Um, and I'm sure we've all taken a lot away from today. We're going to set ourselves up better. We're going to breathe a little bit more. And we're just going to start asking more questions uh, before we jump into the little bottle. No worries, Shelley. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed listening to today's conversation with Dr. Olivia Lesler. So many great ideas to percolate on there. The idea of mind body being as one that certainly resonates with me. And I do love the holistic approach. Lots of new therapies to explore there as well. Uh, if there was any supplements mentioned in today's conversation that you'd like to explore further, just head over to youmusttryit.com. And I know you know we have online health coaching there available as well. Feeling a little overwhelmed with your own mental health, please remember to reach out. There are so many great support systems available. Someone is always there to listen. And do remember that mental health is as important as gut health. And just like gut health, it needs daily attention. Thank you so much for tuning in. I'm Shelley Craft. Until next week, please take care of yourselves and I'll speak to you soon. Bye. As always, the Aging Project podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes. Always seek medical advice from a qualified practitioner.